Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday the 9th of July 2021. Uh, Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear Dr. Jen in for Weird Science talking about disgust. And then there's a talk break talking more about disgusting things. (laughs) Barry Monty Pryor joined us to chat about his new book, Story Doctors, and our Friday funny bugger was Nat Harris. And we had a chat to Clem Basto about her new book, Late Bloomer, How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life. And we also have a bit of a chat about the Blackwood Easter Carnival. Melbourne's own Triple R. You know everything's right with the world because Dr. Jen's here on a Wednesday with Weird Science. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Daniel. It's Wednesday again. How did that happen? Just rolls around and you always bring something new every Wednesday. Uh, yeah, I thought I thought today we'd talk about disgust, not not because I find you guys disgusting, but it's because it's such a good topic. <laughs> yes. I love the idea of feeling really disgusted right now. Yeah, I'm intrigued yeah. to hear about this. Well, I, I seem to recall that uh, we have actually talked about disgust before in a slightly different context. And Sarah, I, I seem to recall you telling me that you get pretty damn disgusted by things. Is, yes. that, is that true? <laughs> yeah, so when you, when you say the word disgust, I automatically think of someone <laughs> eating near me. Right. Eating near so, oh, Yeah, wow. I have an issue with hearing chewing. Right. So, yeah. but yeah, well, we've talked about that too. We've talked right? about that, but that, that when you say disgust, that's how I, I my the feeling I get over my body is the feeling of disgust I feel for mm. hearing someone chew. And, and Bobby, I, what makes you feel disgusted? Um, I think it might be sports injuries. Oh. That's something that oh. I, yeah, hyperextended <laughs> legs, oh, yeah, and knees because I've done knees. injuries as well. So I think after doing them myself, I just can't watch them. Mm. Knee injuries, oh, especially, yeah. Uh, it makes me think of some things I've seen at gymnastics events that yeah. you just don't want to talk about. Yeah. Mm. Um, Daniel, you I, I eating like, sports? I, like, I just like sickening other people, I suppose. <laughs> I, th- I think I said before <laughs> that um, I enjoyed uh, candied bacon being moist and Sarah, like, gagged at just the... Oh, the cubed. Well, the cubed, the, cubed candied bacon. Also, just the word moist, like... <laughs> moist is fine. 6.48, 5am in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so so the thing to know, of course, is that disgust is actually really useful for us, Sarah. It's you know I'm not necessarily saying it's good for you that you find it disgusting when other people eat, because sadly <laughs> other people do really need to eat, or they're not going to be very healthy. But you know, disgust is good. So, at its basic level, can you remember the Pixar movie Inside Out? You remember that movie that had all the different yeah, emotions characters. And so there's a scene when the little girl's dad tries to feed her broccoli and disgust says to the other emotions, okay, caution, there's a dangerous smell, people. And then disgust like flicks this little lever which makes the girl, you know, chuck the bowl of broccoli over her dad. And disgust, <laughs> disgust response is, well, I just saved our lives. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the idea of disgust is that it keeps us safe. So, you know, if you feel repulsed by blood or pus or whatever it is, spoiled milk, you know, it's an emotional response that tells you don't go near that thing, it could make you sick. So, you know, if we didn't have disgust, it, it would definitely be a problem. But one of the things is that we've learned about with disgust research, and this is we touched on this when I um, talked about disgust with you guys, I think it was about 18 months ago, Sarah and Daniel, something like that anyway, 
the problem with disgust is that there's also a whole lot of moral disgust. Now, we generally think it's good. You know, if you feel repulsed by racism or repulsed by exploitation of children, you know, that's good. That That's going to make you act well. But the problem is that we I also told you these crazy results that showed if you can make someone feel disgust, they're much more likely to vote conservatively, for example, yeah. which is kind of crazy. So people who feel disgust are more likely to judge other people negatively. One study showed, so so I guess what you need to know is that some people are more prone to disgust than others. So I guess we call them squeamish, but psychologists call them disgust prone. So Sarah, love you, but from what I understand <laughs> of you, you are disgust prone. Is that a fair assessment? Possibly, yeah, but I just don't know where this is going, so I don't want to sign up. To I don't want to sign up to being discussed. You're going to tell me that I'm going to vote conservatively. And... No, no, no. But but people who are disgust prone or, or more sensitive to feeling disgust have been shown to have particular behaviours. So, okay, Sarah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but but one study, for example, mocked up this um, courtroom setting. So they had mock jurors. And among those mock jurors, those who are more likely to feel disgust, so more disgust prone, they were also more likely to decide someone was guilty. They were more likely to convict a suspect (laughs) and they were more likely to recommend long prison sentences. This is going to get me out of jury duty next time. <laughs> so, so, so I guess what I'm getting at is that feeling disgust can be a problem for people, right? And and there's also crazy research which shows that it can impact career choices. So they looked at a whole lot of people who were training in, in a health profession and it turned out that people who were more disgust prone were more likely to have chosen something like pharmacy rather than nursing because they didn't mm. want to be exposed to you know, people's bodily fluids and things, oh. which, I don't know, interesting that it would have that effect. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. Isn't it? It really is. Yeah. So you want to help, and you, you, but you don't want to see it. Yeah, you don't want to deal with the nitty-gritty of it, so you end up choosing a career in pharmacy yeah. instead, which is pretty interesting. Selling jelly beans. Well, who doesn't want jelly? <laughs> so, so all this is heading to me trying to say to you guys that surely it would be good then if we could learn to control our disgust. In some situations, it would be really handy if we could learn to not feel disgusted. So traditionally, the idea was that you just expose people to things more and they'll feel less disgusted. And so evidence for this is in things like, um, and Sarah, feel free to disagree with me, but the research has shown that new mothers really quickly become less disgusted by the smell of their own baby's dirty nappies. Oh, yeah. Man, if you look at my phone, the first five photos of a, a, a baby poo. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're always worried about the... Oh, you want to see... If there's problems, if there's stomach, you know, you always want to see what the colour is. The doctors are always asking. And so, I mean, I'm right in there. Why is you know, like, to be um, disgusting, but we're not? I, uh, you're talking baby poo and different colours. Yeah, but... I, I mean, I'm into um, it. I don't know. I'm going through therapy for my disgust therapy. <laughs> yeah. but, but so, Sarah, the next important question then is, are you any less disgusted by other babies' poo? Oh. oh, I don't think I've been around other babies' poo yet. 
Okay. Okay. Well, maybe you need to test this out and report back for mm. me next week. You can do an experiment. But but what we what we think is that in fact you're not going to be any less disgusted by another baby's poo. It's oh. just that because you love your own baby, you learn to cope with mm. with your baby's poo. So this suggests that exposure maybe doesn't necessarily help at all. And I don't have time to tell you about a whole lot of other studies that have basically found the same thing. But there's this new study that's just come out which suggests that maybe there is a way to try and control our feelings of disgust, which would be really useful in lots of situations. I mean, obviously, we're talking about fairly innocuous situations, not meaning to diminish your challenges, Sarah, of being disgusted by people eating. But obviously, you know, if someone's experiencing um, obsessive compulsive behaviour, you know, it can be really, really problematic. Mm. So the key thing you need to know about this research is that there's two different kind of levels of response people have to feeling disgusted. The first is them um, looking at what the results of this disgusting experience is going to be. So this is like someone believing, I'm, I'm definitely going to get sick from this. If I touch this cockroach, I'm definitely going to get sick. Okay, that's the first level, and psychologists call this the primary appraisal. So I guess you can think about this as the primary thought. The secondary appraisal or the secondary thought that comes next is people wondering how they're going to cope with feeling disgusted. So in their head they might be going, oh, my God, I'm always going to feel this way. This is completely overwhelming. I just can't cope with seeing this cockroach. And so these researchers decided to play with those two different responses, the primary response and the secondary response. So they got a group of volunteers together who, who had real concerns about contamination, and contamination is a big part of feeling disgust. And last time I was here, we talked about the thought experiment that if you imagine a delicious bowl of cherries, if you spot one cockroach in the bowl of cherries, most people now would not touch those cherries. For them, that whole bowl of cherries is contaminated. Yet if I say to you, here's a bowl of cockroaches, if I add one cherry, that doesn't make the cockroaches any nicer, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So isn't contamination weird that one cockroach spoils all the cherries, but yeah. one cherries does nothing to make the cockroaches better? Yeah. Mm. So you get a group of people who have this sort of um, feeling really strongly that contamination is terrible, I'm really scared about contamination. And then you try and see if you can train them to do two things that normally they would find completely dis disgusting. One is to touch a dead cockroach and the other is to drink apple juice out of a clean, unused urine sample container. Oh. So it's just clean plastic, right? But it, it, because it's a urine container and the apple juice is yellow, people find that absolutely repulsive and can't oh. do it. So then you play with these primary appraisals and secondary um, appraisals and you get one group of people, you have a big group of participants, you split them in three. The first group, you get you convince them that it's very unlikely what they're worried about is actually going to happen. So you tell them there's no way you can get sick from touching a cockroach. The second group of people, you tell them you can cope with these feelings. Disgust is really normal. Don't worry about it. It's completely harmless. It's a temporary emotion. You'll be fine. The third group, of course, are controls and they don't read anything. And it's it turns out that both of those um, interventions made people much more able to either touch the dead cockroach or drink the apple juice. Like they were able to change these people's mm. feelings of disgust, which is super cool. 
Bloody hell. Oh, that's extraordinary. Cockroach cherries and uh, <laughs> coloured pooey nappies and yeah. apple juice piss. I feel like we should have had a retrospective <laughs> trigger warning for the oh, discussion. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I should have gone there. But but this is a good news story, right? This is saying that if you understand why you're feeling disgusted because yeah. you're worried about a worst-case scenario or you're feeling like you just can't cope with disgust and it makes you feel horrible, this research suggests that you can train yourself to be less affected by those thoughts and mm. that maybe disgust won't be such a big problem for you if, if you want to work on it. If it's something that's a problem for you and you want to work on it, this research just suggests that we can. Okay. And so does that mean, like, you know how ugly fruit, like it's not going to hurt you, but people <laughs> stay away from it? Hmm. If we if we desensitise ourselves by eating more ugly fruit, we'll eat more of it? Is that, I mean... Is, oh, and, and convincing ourselves that being initially repulsed by it is normal because it looks a bit odd and a bit strange, but in fact there's nothing wrong with it and it's going to taste delicious and mm. it can't make us sick. I mean, we just have to question our thinking and tackle it, I reckon. Yeah. God, fascinating and so revolting. Um, <laughs> I know. It's good, right? Every morning, <laughs> yeah, every morning let's feel more disgusting. It's invigorating. <laughs> uh, Dr Jen, thank you so much. Take it easy, guys. See you next week. Triple R. Dr. Jen uh, was talking about disgust, so we decided to continue that conversation <laughs> in the studio and see who could disgust the other person most. And Smithy did a really good job with uh, Daniel, who's just scraped himself off, off the floor. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah so I just told a story that I won't repeat on air, but... Yeah. Um, Daniel was on the ground like a worm, writhing. <laughs> well, it was totally involuntary. Yeah, but it, it actually, if uh, when I first got told that the story that I shared, I was sitting in a car with a seatbelt that was containing me. Yeah. But had I not been contained by a seatbelt, I probably also would have yeah. been writhing on the floor. Well, like I mean, worm. first I ripped off the mic sock, <laughs> yeah, and uh, walked over to a wall, threw it against the wall, <laughs> and then fell to the floor. It's interesting what you do, isn't it? When you like, I, I had to close my ears and just like cover my head, and I, I was just because I, 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 I knew I, I knew what was going to happen, but I didn't want to know. And it was, it was just um, and and just another thing, just touching on that when uh, Dr. Jen was talking about cockroaches, I lived in Fiji for three months a um, number of years ago, and when I first arrived there, I remember going out for takeout with some friends, and as I was in this takeout place, a cockroach went across the Bainbury uh, of this fried chicken that I was about to order and I saw it and I walked straight out and I went to another takeaway place. Well, I kid you not, a month later I was eating that fried chicken and I could even see the cockroaches, but they were everywhere. I was just so used to them in Pacific, like just the tropical weather, cockroaches are throughout the house and just in every single shop. So, like, I was just like, oh, it is what it is. I'll have two pieces of fried chicken, please. Yeah. You just. uh, I can't believe you got used to cockroaches on food. Yeah. Yeah, and and because they were they were just within your house. Every, I, I lived in uh, Fiji. I also lived in Samoa as well. So it honestly was just a uh, just yeah. part of your life, isn't it? I mean, I remember when I moved to Sydney. That's the first time I'd encountered giant cockroaches. There cockroaches mm. everywhere, and nothing probably to that extent. But I did become more comfortable with giant cockroaches being in around than yeah. I ever had been. I don't know. The point where they were crawling over my food. Yeah. But, yeah. I had this okay, – this is totally going off the talk topic that I had, but anyway, I'm going to continue with this. When I was living in Fiji, uh, I was staying at a friend's place and uh, I, was, I was just staying there like in between – moving house. So I was staying there for the week and I was in the lounge room and they'd set up a, a mattress for me with a grass mat and I had a, 
a fly screen kind of over the top of me that made it as nice as they could. Um, but I could hear, I was asleep in the middle of the night and I could hear scraping like where my ear was. So I've lifted my head and I've looked under my pillow and I couldn't see anything. I was like, oh, and I've lifted the mattress. Underneath the mattress, there was a grass mat. So there was that on the floor. And as I've lifted it up, mm. I saw a, it's probably about 30 centimetres in length um, and a centipede. <gasps> And because they're everywhere as well, but in in the islands, the the bigger they are, the less poisonous they are. But <laughs> my scream was similar to Daniel's not long ago, <laughs> and I did everyone come running out, and it just like as soon as I've lifted the thing, um, and it has just like slid out the door, and I, I slept on the table for the rest of the week. Did you really? Well, I wasn't going to sleep on the floor, so I was just like, if you guys don't mind, unless otherwise, I'm jumping in with my mate. So, um, yeah, the table. <laughs> There's something so embarrassing about that kind of cultural like disconnect. I, I think I've told this story before, but I remember when I was in Mexico when I was quite young, 20 or 21, we stayed in this tiny little town and they had insect nets over the beds that we were staying in and um, the three, I was with two girlfriends and we woke up <clears throat> and oh, we were going to bed or we woke up or we looking at our phones. I can't even, I wouldn't have been phones back then. God knows. But it, we, we woke up at one point and my friend started screaming and over out, the nets were covered in tiny little scorpions, <gasps> like little. On the outside of the net. On the outside of the net. Mm. But a little scorpion is still a scorpion in my mind. Oh, I never, absolutely. I never encountered scorpions and they were not in with us, but they were out. Mm. outside. So we were screaming until a man from the place we were staying came running in. He just laughed at us. Like he got a broom, <laughs> was flicking the scorpions off the net <laughs> and just sweeping them out the door. But he just wouldn't. And I thought this is so embarrassing. Like we just, I, I, I was trying to be cool and tough about it, but I just, I couldn't be tough about miniature scorpions all over our nets. What, uh, uh, what was interesting watching you react to the centipede story, oh. Sarah, was like a muppet. Like... <laughs> Like standing, like there was strings from your right hand and the right side of your face, and they flinched in that direction. There's something about centipedes and things with lots of legs. Oh, I swear there are a thousand legs on this thing. It was insane. (laughs) Yeah, anyway. What is it about multiple legs? Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's creepy. Also, the fact that you heard it scratch, scratching. It was, it was huge. Like, it was so big that you could hear it scratching. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was terrifying. And my scream, my friends did, it sounded like someone had come in and was murdering me. It was so <laughs> horrific that, yeah. So, Well, it was said, trying to murder you with its little legs. Well, it, yeah. was. it was. If I hadn't have got up, who knows what would have happened. I might not be. Yeah. Okay, anyway. My, my disgust from the uh, scorpion story is more the malaria net or the bug net yeah is you know they're not washing that oh mm. you know that's a years and years that's of people true. sleeping underneath this oh. net yeah. and it's draping over these naked bodies <laughs> naked <laughs> no not your body not <laughs> <laughs> the story i told daniel <laughs> independent melbourne radio 3 triple r Burry Monty Pryor is a multi-award winning author, former Australian Children's Laureate, acclaimed actor and co-writer and subject of Wrong Kind of Black, screening now on Netflix. His new illustrated book, published to coincide with NADOC Week, is called Story Doctors. And to tell us about it, the Prime Minister's Literary Award winner joins us now, Burry Monty Pryor. Welcome to Breakfasters. 
Great. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks indeed. Can you uh, tell us about the theme of healing and what you've sought to capture with this book? Well, as you, excuse me, as you know, that healing uh, always comes from within. Sorry, I just did a did a talk on the ABC, Mm -hmm. Um, um, uh, and. Unless we start within ourselves, then it's nothing's going to work. And no one, no one can really heal you but yourself. But you have to have the right direction. And I think that within this country, we are all very sick, and that's because we haven't dealt with things that we should have been dealing with. And it's not. Um, it's not really that hard uh the the sometimes the easiest things are the hardest things to do because i don't know through you know i've worked with over a million and a half children and and adults across this land over the last 25 years and hence the the book story doctors which is uh out now is uh, the culmination of the journey uh of myself from listening and sharing and learning and living so and what i saw was that we needed medicine and we needed the medicine from from this land and when i say that i don't mean people taking it i mean people waiting and sitting down and being given it a lot of the times things are taken and it doesn't work like that so i think that um the story doctors that's what that concentrates on more so than anything else. You're right of uh, Eco Echoes. Can you um, flesh that out for us? Oh, good. I, I like that because when I was started writing it, um, in the foreword, uh, uh, Eco Echoes came to mind. Uh, so it's kind of like a representation of voices from the past, which is 80,000 years worth of talking and living and learning. And written words are the new way of spelling things out. So I myself made up, like, to help me write this, made up two entities. One was Eco Echoes and the other one was Written Words. And I wanted to work with these two. And these two, uh, Eco Echoes and written, Written Words, said, no, you can't work with us because you're too angry. Go over there, go into that room and sort yourself out. So I was like lancing a boil again. So I was like I went into this room and all the all the things from the past when I was younger child and also, you know, the referendum back in sixty seven, right up to now where the Prime Minister says there was no slavery in Australia blowing up sacred sites. So I had to fight all these things to be able to write something that people would at least sit down and have a look at, you know, and it and give it a heartbeat and give it rhythm and rhyme and and, well, firstly, I didn't know how I was going to write it. And I sat down, and as I said in the foreword, that I just had to work through it, and it was really hard. And like anything, if you know, you don't want to look at yourself sometimes because, you know, you feel ugly, and it's like you're hurting, and it's like you've got to do this work. And uh, so so I was wrestling with these, with these you know, like these... <clears throat> these things are going, no, don't be nice, don't do this, don't do that. So after I wrestled and did all this work with these things up in that room, I came out 
you know, shredded and sore and hurt. And Eco Echoes and Written Words said, good man, you've done your work. Mm. Come on, let's get together and write this. So, so I've done my work, I suppose, through my family as well. Um, and now I put it out there to maybe give you a chance to think about doing something about how you feel. Well, as an outsider, you seem to be fairly prolific, but if this book made you feel shredded, does that, I presume not everything you write is causes that much anguish? What was it about this project in particular that, that um, tore you up? Well, you know, the, I suppose the, the, this, the, the, tip, the tipping point, I suppose, was the leader of this nation saying there was no slavery. You know, it's like, well, we've got to do better than that, you know? And that's not demeaning the person who said that. That means that that person has to do some work, which means the rest of the nation. If he is leading us, we're going to fall off a cliff. And, and it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's not for me to judge anyone. You know, it's judging yourself first. To work on that that person, and um, I'm I've done that, and I'm still doing that. So, um, and you know, like I work with preschool, and um, they want to know the little four or five year olds want to know about their country, and they're being starved. So we're starving our children by not dealing with this problem, and the problem is starting at. Terranullius. That's their own word, I suppose, the English or British. So once we start there, that's lancing the boil. Now we have to deal with the mess to, to look at it at least. And we, we can't get better if we don't work together to do this. Then we have a chance to heal. Then we can disagree about things that are really important. It's gorgeously illustrated. And before we let you go, I suppose... I have to ask about Rita Sinclair and what you make of the work and what it was like working together. Well, Rita and I have been working on another book for about eight years, but uh, we're good mates and she is just brilliant. And she didn't realise it, well, she still doesn't, a bit, I suppose, but I said, no, I want you to do this book with me. And she said, wow, really? And I said, yep. So then um, we we really worked together because um, she's a, a great listener and hopefully she thinks I'm a great li- listener. So, and we got together and we worked on it. And uh, uh, just by sharing and understanding and looking, looking for things that would work, and her and her magic, and I suppose me and my heartbeat and rhythm within the story. Um, so, so that's and she, she's a local, you know, Mariba um, uh, Ingham girl from up up north Queensland and uh Iron Hill uh and Bowen. So it's like we yes, we're both from up there, so that's really great. She's a teacher librarian as well. So so anyway, so we, we get we got on really well when we discussed things and worked things out. And so this is the end result of that through this book. All right. Well here's to another million and a half Australians who you get to read too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Uh, well, Story Doctors is a lyrical and beautiful piece of work. It's written by Barry Monty Pryor. It's illustrated by Rita Sinclair, and it's out now via Alan and Unwin. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.
You know you set up well for the weekend when Nat Harris joins us as our Friday funny bugger. Morning, Nat. Good morning, guys. Good morning. So, nice to be with you on yeah, the airwaves. Yeah, bloody oath. So many awards for Nat Harris, oh, right? Stop it. Have you won any this morning? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Best breakfast. <laughs> so I had porridge, oh. banana, maple syrup. It is oh. quite cool. Yep, I awarded it to myself. Well, well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Bobby, lovely to be on the airwaves with you. I know. It's fun. Now, I know you're a big sports fan, so I wanted to ask you, do you have a favourite amateur social basketball team that plays on a Tuesday night? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants to know. Not at the moment, but... Well, you do now. Right. Congratulations. Your new favourite basketball team, social basketball team, is mine. Great. Um, and we're called the Dirty Bloomers. Oh, the Dirty um, Bloomers. Nice. Yeah. You just it's run like, around in bloomers? Pardon? You just run around in bloomers? No. no. Okay. But m- maybe we could. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I can be your correspondence for that. Oh, We'd love great. You to come down, maybe. So, check us sorry, out. contact sports back and you've done it? Yes, we're back. Right. It's so oh, that's good. Fun. I think I played my first game. Yeah, no, I played my first game on this Tuesday and it was incredible. Were you rusty? Uh, uh, yeah, I was pretty rusty. But we, this was wild. We have been like on the bottom of the ladder pretty much all season. We've had a bit of a tough season, but we're on the comeback. We only lost by three points to the second top team. Oh, wow. That's great. Good on you. Yeah, it was amazing. Anyway, but um, look, I'm not here to talk about my basketball team. I, (laughs) um, last weekend, partook in Christmas in July for the first time. Oh, well done. Yes, have you guys ever done that? Yeah, well, I hosted it once a few years ago. Did you? I had never done it before and we thought it was stupid and then I was like, this is wonderful. What a great thing to do, (laughs) having roast pork in the middle of the year and everyone dressed up and, oh. Yes. And in winter, yeah. Yeah. It is. I think I like, look, don't get me wrong, I had a great time, but I think I've decided that it's unnecessary. Of course it's unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the races. We literally just got drunk in red and green knits. That was it. Did you you eat Christmas food? No. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Do you know what I ate? A Thai green curry. (laughs) That is not Christmas in July. That is you wearing a red and green jumper. It's just just getting pissed in the cold. Obviously it is. Like, but imagine if like, yeah, it's just because people are used to celebrating winter, like from if you're from the northern hemisphere. Mm. But it's like imagine if we, we duplicated everything because we wanted it in the like in the different weather. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like get over it. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, go on. No, I just think, you know, if you're going to do Christmas in July, you have to make it Christmassy. You wear a festive jumper. You could do that as much as you want, but don't call it Christmas in July. <laughs> just a day in July. Thank you very okay. much. Okay. Right. 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 I think what I could be coming out of it. It's all right. <laughs> no, my friend organised it 
So it's your friend's um, fault. <laughs> she lives in Beechworth, so she invited us all up. The mm. food was the one thing that wasn't Christmassy. Other than okay. that, she went to a lot of effort. There was right. Christmas tree, there was decorations, there was okay. carols, there was the bonbons. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I yeah, take yeah, it all back. Yeah. So hang on a minute. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> It's still silly. Um, <laughs> the other thing that maybe was a little bit off the Christmas theme was that her mum handed out the KK presents and she was dressed as Elf. <laughs> Not an Elf. Oh, Elf. She hired Elf. <laughs> an Elf costume. Like, that would have been expensive. Like, it was yeah. a good costume. Can I just say, <laughs> briefly, I thought she accidentally came as Elf. That's what I was thought you meant. No, she did. Oh, <laughs> the little As in the alien, the alien with the nose. Yes. Yeah, the alien with the nose. With the what? ribbed snout. Yes, yes. I didn't know Elf was an alien either until I didn't remember ha! that. She went as Elf. That's awesome. <laughs> she went as Elf, and that was a costume change. Before that, she arrived in. Um, a turkey costume, a blow-up turkey costume, and she was late, but her plan was to be on the table, laid out on the table. <laughs> this is your friend's mum? My friend's mum. Wow. I know. But, yeah, so we did the KK. <laughs> I mean, and KK is just a trash exchange, isn't it? Yes, yes it can absolutely. be. Yeah, so that's like we don't need two KKs per year. It's enough. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, but then you give what you got at the next one. Yeah, that's true. And so, okay, I and how isn't this revealing? So the Christmas is in July. What are you giggling about, Mon? Just thinking. No, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, miss. Like, nothing, miss. <laughs> um, so we went to do Christmas in July in Beechworth and the town. And <laughs> are you starting? Are you starting the story again? <laughs> no, we know this bit. <laughs> Did I already tell you this? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> can, can people hear this? So, okay, what was my KK gift? Beechworth. I got honey. Oh, that's oh, Beechworth honey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that just reeks of a last-minute gift, doesn't it? <laughs> mm, yeah, but, but what did you what did you give? Yeah, I gave it a very like not a typical KK present. I gave a book. I gave the the book Ikigai, which is like the art of living or like the ja- the Japanese philosophy about like living a happier, worthwhile life. And I'm uh-huh. like, I really wanted it. I know, isn't it? It's a bit <laughs> deep for a KK present, isn't it? <laughs> Do you think that's what someone was doing with the honey? Do you think someone really wanted it and that's why they gave it or it was just they didn't think at all? I think it was the last minute <laughs> Absolute disorganisation, Bob. You should have you should have done that KK where you can then steal. Did you do that one? Oh yeah. Oh, you know where you yeah. steal. They're a bit of fun, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, no bad bad Santa. Yeah, something. bad Santa. We should have. Yeah, absolutely. Icky guy is nice. It's a bit. It? Yeah, I think it's thoughtful. Do you think it's thoughtful? It's kind of embarrassing. I was actually a little bit embarrassed, like about it. Do you, sorry to ask, but do you know who it's going to, or is it random? It was random, right. but I did. I stood in the corner in my niche and <laughs> stupid hat and watched. Just like, I was like, oh, he's got it, he's got it. And I'm like, they're either going to love it or hate it. They took one glance at it and just filled up their drink. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they're annoyed. You know, you want something. Maybe you just want that bit of 
trash. Was I'm, there anything was, good that uh, that everyone wanted? Um, I don't know. I can't remember. Maybe that. No, I don't remember. Beechworth. How does the Beechworth honey? I mean, Beechworth honey is just outstanding. I'm. I think it's a terrific gift. Do you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think yeah. Disorganization aside, yeah, it's a delicious gift. But I left it at the pub because that. <gasps> oh. just, how you roll with Christmas in July. That's true. <laughs> That's true. It's just a big trash waste fest. <laughs> Were you having Christmas at the pub or did you just take it with you from the party to the pub? Um, I just dripped it all over me. <laughs> <laughs> I just opened it up and just slowly just walked around the whole town just dripping honey. Just follow everywhere. the trail of honey. Yeah. Every door handle in Beechworth is now sticky. And where, where do the dirty bloomers play? Are you, are you prepared to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we play at Carlton Bars on Tuesday night. Um, we're currently second last on the ladder, but I feel a comeback in the waters. Yeah. We've got we've got one of our strongest players back. She just had a baby, and thank God she's back. She's so good. And then we're, we've got some really strong subs. So watch this space. Yeah. Ooh. And uh, do you know who you're playing up next? Next week. Yeah. No well, you only really find out when you get there. Yeah, no, no, we definitely we got a WhatsApp chat and we um we go, "Ooh, we're playing them." Yeah. Or, "Ooh, we're playing them." Just, just quickly, the last time it came up, uh, you were uh, you didn't know what a key was. Oh, excuse me, I know what a key is. <laughs> no, I didn't know what a what's the shot you called it? The penalty shot? Oh, the Foul free shot? throw? Yeah, you called it a free throw. It threw me. Um, <laughs> I absolutely that's what know it's called. what a key is. I play zone, I dribble, I pass. <laughs> what did you do? I do yeah. heaps of stuff. I get fouls, I get <laughs> I sub. You sub. I do all the stuff. <laughs> You're all the stuff. Uh, Nat, yeah. legend, have a uh, good luck this week and um, happy yeah. Christmas in July. Yeah, oh, thank you. Good tidings. Thanks, Bye. Bye. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Clem Basto is an award-winning cultural critic whose work appears regularly in the Saturday paper, The Age, The Guardian, and who has written about film and TV for journals, including The Lifted Brow and Kill Your Darlings. Clem's latest book is titled Late Bloomer, How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life. And to tell us about it, the co-host of Triple R's beloved Tuesday night show, Superfluity, joins us now. Clem, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, it's so nice to be back. Oh, I'm very <laughs> excited to uh, to chat to you. I mean, this just came out, what, yesterday? Yeah, yeah, fresh and new. Fresh and new. I mean, I, I want to ask how are you, but you write, the very question how are you can bring a complete brain shutdown. <laughs> <laughs> how does that relate to the book itself? Oh, look, lucky I'm ready for it now. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's been an interesting process uh, writing something like this, which, um, as I'm sure you can appreciate, is, is very kind of uh, exposing. So, you know, a lot of it I'm hoping is just in the book and I can just say to people, well, if you just turn to page 67. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, um, it's been a really, you know, I wrote this mostly last year during, during lockdown, which was an experience. Um, but it was, a, it was kind of an amazing journey of... of um, self-reflection to go on you know I was diagnosed as autistic when I was 36 so I've sort of spent the last few years kind of working out what that means and looking back over my life and kind of understanding a lot of stuff uh, a lot better than I ever had. Have you arrived at a working definition of autism or is the is it just so flexible and malleable as you write that it's difficult to articulate? 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is one of those things. And unfortunately, you know, we hear a lot of phrases these days like everyone's a bit autistic, aren't we all on the spectrum? Um, and the short answer is no. <laughs> but it is a very diffuse uh, condition. And so I think that, that that is troubling for a lot of people because they can't just say, okay, well, autism is this, um, which is really interesting because if you think of any community, um, you know, we don't we don't typically say, well, everybody in this community, uh, you know, looks this way, behaves this way, thinks this, thinks that, you know, it, they're just, there seems to be this enduring need for a kind of monolithic autism. And I think that's partly because so much of what we, in inverted commas, know about it comes from uh, the media. So, so depictions of autism are typically the Rain Man model. Um, and that's definitely true of some autistic people, but, but not everybody. And so I think that that's, that's something that people are coming to understand now. And I think that's a really good thing, that diversity of, of presentations. Mm. Most people would say, don't go to Google to diagnose any medical condition <laughs> that you have. However, very early on in the book, you explain that that's basically how you came to the conclusion that you, you might be autistic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was really interesting. I, I am also a screenwriter. It's one of the other things I do. And I had been working on this script for, for quite a few years and we were having these meetings in development and, and um, you know, it always get the same feedback around the characters, which is, I'm just not sure what this character's feeling. Like, what what's their emotional wound? And I would always just think, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know what mine is. Um, and so it was this interesting process sort of writing myself to at least the diagnostic process where initially I sort of realised, oh, I think this character might be, um, you know, on the autism spectrum. Um, and uh, then I sort of started to think about myself and a, a bunch of stuff kind of came to mind and I asked a few autistic friends, you know, have you ever thought that that might be the case with me? And they all laughed and said, yes, we've been <laughs> welcome, we've been waiting. Um, and, yeah, and then I just happened to like, – it, it was a rare example of Dr Google actually being very helpful because I, I wasn't aware myself that – that autism can present really differently in in, um, in women and gender diverse people, and so reading more about that, I was I was just kind of you know every paragraph going, oh wow, that's me, or that was me, that's me in grade one, that's me at, at kinder. So, you know, that was really illuminating. And I think if that hadn't happened, um, you know, yeah, it's interesting to think where I might be. I might still be going, what's <laughs> what's wrong with me? Like, why is why is some stuff so hard that it doesn't seem to be hard for other people? Well, you say that high school for an undiagnosed autistic girl from a hard-up family was mostly an unrelenting white-knuckle hell ride, uh, <laughs> <laughs> peppered with occasional moments of levity. Uh, what Talk us through what some of the reflections on your time growing up without a diagnosis. Yeah, looking back, I mean, there were things that were just, you know, a lot of the time when people talk about getting diagnosed or seeking diagnosis, particularly for their kids, there's this concern that, well, then you'll be labelled, you know, you'll be labelled as the autistic kid. But but I had a lot of labels applied to me, um, none of which were assent- were particularly true. You know, I, I would have what would have been described as tantrums, which I can now understand were actually meltdowns. So things like having my hair brushed, you know, having to wear certain things, do certain things. Um, you know, a tantrum's really different to a meltdown. A meltdown is just something that you can't control. As a tantrum, we've all seen a kid chuck a tanty in the supermarket because they're not getting a, you know, birdie beetle. Um, they're sort of willful. So that was that was a big one, you know. So I was often called naughty or, or you know, angry. Um, I, was, I was called selfish because I was very protective of my my toys, which I would have, you know, line up by, by colour. Um 
and and then just things around learning too. You know, I was a funny mix. I was sort of deemed to be gifted in some areas because I was very um, articulate and, you know, I really enjoyed creative uh, subjects like art and and um, English uh, creative writing. But then I just could not understand maths. You know, it just, mm-hmm. just never really worked for me. And, and unfortunately, you know, I went to a pretty good school, pretty good state school, but, but even in that context, you weren't good at maths, you're just sort of a bit of a dummy, you know, and, and, and or you weren't trying hard enough. Um, so every year you would sort of come back to maths class and try again and it just wasn't, it wasn't kind of getting through to me. So I had this really strange experience where, you know, in certain contexts I was, you know, called very gifted and, and talented and then in others I just felt like a complete, um, complete sort of dropout. Um, and the same thing happened at uni. You know, I, dro- I dropped out of uni and TAFE uh, three times before I eventually went back and, and did my master's in my 30s. So I think having understood, having been able to understand what was going on there would have saved a lot of, um, a lot of angst because, you know, if you drop out of uni, you just sort of think, what's wrong with me? Am I just like a bludger? Like, you know, I couldn't work it out. So I think having that prism um, of understanding post-diagnosis has been so so useful to kind of almost a bit of a healing process, I guess, mm. to go back and think all these times that I thought it was naughty or bad or stupid or, you know, whatever, yeah. um, there was actually something concrete uh, kind of in the background there. Clem, one of the things that you chat about in the book um when you were younger, you had like an inner monologue of emotions, but on the exterior, you'd cover it, cover it up by, I guess, doing like a stand-up routine, you described it as, and kind of explain your inner monologue in a funny way. So, you know, get a load of this. I'm absolutely terrified of these balloons being stuck in this room with you, children. Is that, is that something that, uh, that you still do now or, or has that changed? Uh, it is, you know, it's something I think I'm aware of now. And, and, and so it's kind of bittersweet because I think one thing, and I've talked to other people who've been like diagnosed too about this, there's almost a part of you, a sort of authentic part of you that you, you, you sort of worry you're never going to be able to reconnect or connect with because you can't reconnect with something that you never knew was there. So there are kind of behaviours and thoughts and innate autistic experiences that you've sort of just squashed down through this ad hoc process of trying to trying to kind of get through life and for me one of those was being funny about everything you know Mm. I um have had many conversations with friends where something's gone badly or you know I've had a terrible date or something and it's like you know it turns into a Seinfeld routine and I and I remember a friend of mine saying you know it's okay to cry about this you're okay to be upset and I was like I don't know so yeah I think I think now I'm able to go oh you're doing that thing again maybe try not to do that but yeah it might take a long time you know I think I think that's what's kind of bittersweet about having written the book is that I feel like the kind of because it's only been you know what three and a half four years since diagnosis um I feel like there's a lot of unlearning to go from this point on and you know hopefully I'll one day I'll get to a place where I feel like I'm I'm kind of fully me and not 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 performing, but then I also love performing. So mm. it's a hard, it's a hard <laughs> line in the sand to draw. Yeah. Well, you uh, you write about some obsessiveness, including for Stephen Sondheim. Um, <laughs> you were on the Einstein Factor with him as your special subject, but you lost. Do you remember? Do you remember any questions that stumped you that you'll never forget? Oh, there was something. There was one about oh, what was that thing that he did with Anthony Perkins, and I just had not. 
I had been, you know, hilarious in retrospect. I'd been so kind of the good autistic, um, you know, special interest person that I just focused on what I said I was going to focus on. Yep. So I hadn't sort of done any wider reading. But, yeah, you know, the Sherlock Holmes guy who beat me, I mean, he just reread all the books, you know. It was, <laughs> he studied for an exam. I, I, I had to kind of – I realised that I'd bitten off more than I could chew, but – Yes, that does that does um, that does burn inside me to this day. <laughs> Thanks it, for bringing that up. Was it the true or false? The, ni- the 1973 Hollywood Who Done It, The Last of Sheila, was co-written by yes. Stephen Sondheim and actor Anthony Perkins. <laughs> there you go. Why are you dragging? I'm sorry. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, so, and how how true? <laughs> yeah, true. Bonus points. Correct. Says Peter Burner. Um, and what about how does? Uh, do you think the diagnosis or having autism uh, help or hinder? I think you've written about this for Trip Magazine, that you're co-hosting of Superfluity. Oh, it's great. You know, so you often hear people um, who are autistic talk about having a sort of associational way of thinking, which is, I guess, I think how I described it in, in the trip was, you know, if you've seen Jurassic Park, when, when Lex is like looking around that visual representation of the of the park's um, computer system. It's a bit like that. I sort of, in my mind, are like kind of floating filofaxes and, and, and filing cabinets. So I will, you know, hear something that Casey or Christos have played and then it'll, it's like it opens up a kind of box in my mind and I can go in there. Um, and they're often very kind of Byzantine links, which is very funny because I'll often be doing a, you know, a super clem associational autistic link and then realize there's actually a really obvious one. So so a couple of weeks ago, somebody played Old Crow Medicine Show and I was like, okay, they started out as buskers. I'm pretty sure Cheryl Crow started as a, bus- as a busker as well. And I was like trying to find an interview where she talked about it. And then I was like, hang on a minute, Crow, cool, easy link. Well, yeah, it's kind of like big floating Venn diagrams in, in, in the sky in my mind. Um, and it does make superfluity very fun. Yeah, well, a testimonial from Christos says that the book's fiercely intelligent, fiercely wise, and it is. Uh, Clem Basto, it, the book is called Late Bloomer, How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life. It's out now through Hardy Grant. Congratulations. And um, Thank you. We'll catch you on air on Tuesday? Absolutely. Cool. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Get into it. Yeah, get into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in uh, in Blackwood, a small country town uh, in Victoria, on the way to I guess Ballarat, uh, and then you turn I've off the freeway. Tell you, I yeah. know that we have four listeners in Blackwood. Oh, really? Yeah, just putting it out there. Oh, well, shout out. You so, might know my family up there yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I grew up there when I was probably between the ages of ten and. 10 and 17 and when I was growing up there um, the, the, like I said the population was about 500 everyone knew each other there was one pub um, and I think that's actually the same one pub and a convenience store that has like the post office and and a cafe there now which I went to recently and it's bloody beautiful um, but we we always used to have, and we still do, I think it was just because due to COVID may not have happened this year, but the Blackwood Easter Carnival, which was a wood chopping 
carnival as well. So they had um, um, wood choppers. That, that was the main thing, I think. So they had the Blackwood Wood Chopping Easter Carnival. And that was the most exciting time on the calendar for my brothers and my couple of mates that were there living in Blackwood as well. Because you'd, you'd see uh, maybe a thousand or two thousand people rock up into Blackwood. And we were just so excited. There were other kids there. There were people we could hang out with. Um, but you go down to the Easter Carnival and oh, it was just so, so much fun. Just on the cricket field, we'd walk down. They had all the wood chopping events, but they also had other stalls and, and fun games and abseiling. And they had this one event, uh, and, and I, I love sports, and I'll be very competitive, and I'll give everything a go. And I thought this was a regular thing because I had done this for so many years. Um, but it was the annual gumboot throwing competition, which, I mean, it's kind of like discus, really. Like the, mm. the setup for it was, and they just had these gumboots. Um, and, yeah, and you just have to... Are the gumboots weighted? No, they're just like thick like heavy duty, like industrial right. kind of boots. Um, they, were, they were white boots, but I remember the person you'd have someone that'd be marking you, just like you're in athletics, like with you, making sure you don't go over the line when you when you throw it. But you'd also have someone out there who would mark where the gum boot landed. And I mean, that person got hit by a gum boot multiple times. <laughs> Or like slow reactions? Or? Well, there, we were kind of doing it in cricket nets. So the start of it, you were kind of caged in. So you had to have it between oh. there. And then it'll go out to the oval. So they would be standing kind of at the cricket net. And, I mean, if someone just held onto the gumboot a little bit too long yeah, uh, and accidentally threw it into the net, there was nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, poor, the, was it the same person every year? Oh, I don't know. It could, it could have been. I mean, it was probably the same people doing everything. I was the same yeah. person throwing the gumboots. So the gumboots were provided that you did BYO gumboots. It wasn't BYO. So there was oh, no cheating. Yeah, no, no, no. You, had, yeah, you couldn't bring your own gumboot. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so you'd, you'd throw your gumboot and we had, like, a girls' competition, boys' competition, and then adults. And I think I, I had won um, the girls' competition when I was 10, 11, 12, and then they said, you're in the adult women's now. Um, and I won the adult. I was so excited. I just really look forward to this event. Um, and I don't, I don't Are know you good was... at throwing things in general? Just... Um, I mean, I did discus and shot put. Oh, my God, I yeah. love I, I made state finals with shot put when oh, I was younger. Real... Okay, you're really good at throwing things. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was a normal thing. I think until I um, spoke about it at school, um, someone someone who lived in Greendale, one of the neighbouring suburbs, they've gone, hey, saw you won the gumboot throwing um, a competition on the weekend. I was just like, yeah. And I just thought that was a normal competition until everyone just burst out laughing. Everyone was like, gumboot throwing competition? What is that? I was like, uh, it's an annual event at the Blackwood Easter Carnival. <laughs> Thank you very much. And would you, would you throw it... From your side, or would you go from underneath, or uh, like a shot put yeah. from your neck? Yeah, uh, <laughs> no. Unfortunately, okay. the shot put action doesn't work as well, like a discus. So I would actually, so I would hold the gum boot, um, and then just from the, I guess from down on an angle, and then up. So it's not over nice. the top of the head like bowling ah. a cricket ball, and not sideways. It's kind of diagonal. So you're going down and then up. Beautiful. And did everyone have the same technique, or did uh, you pioneer that technique? No, people. <laughs> That was the most common technique. Um, but some people did try shot put and some people did try to hold... Because I would hold the inside of the top of the gumboot, how you'd pull on a gumboot. Oh, you'd hold that and, and throw it. Whereas some people try to hold the sole of it and and throw it all different ways. But, um, but that was a lot of fun. Another... Um, 
competition that we had there was the nail drive and so they would have this massive piece of wood in the middle of uh in the middle of the oval and there would be three nails like really high nails and this was a huge competition and everyone would come around when you'd have the final you'd have the um just the the heats and they timed you so how long it took you to nail three nails into the piece of wood awesome um and i did it in 11.34 seconds this was it yeah but just lucked out like yeah yeah, like just like i just hit hit the sweet spot every single time and i tell you like and there were hundreds of people watching you just you around (gasps) this log uh and i made it to the final i didn't win the final i was devastated i think i went home crying but anyway it was it was a lot of fun uh and there were just so many things that i i just what was that one called that was a nail drive competition. That was women only in was that, that one. Was that BYO Hammer? No, that they'd provide the hammer as well. So much providing of yeah, isn't that nice? Tools and yeah. oh my god, yeah. yeah. And if you uh, screwed up, so if you banged it bad and it bent, it was game over. Game for you. over. Yeah, oh. yeah. So you'd see some people kind of tap, 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 just gently <laughs> at the start, and then go bang. And then tap, 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 and then bang. But like you, really hard. I just went hard. Went bang. And it was, but that was in, like I said, it was in heat. It wasn't in the final. So. Oh, you went too hard too early. Oh, yeah. Possibly. I mean, it was, yeah, I, I think I was just nervous. There were so many people. Yeah. Such a big event in my life. <laughs> Have you ever thought of going back and like revisiting your champion gumboot throwing days? Wow. I did go back uh, when I was uh, like we went Get with the family. We're like we have to go back to the Easter Carnival. We've got to check out this gumboot throwing. Um, and by that stage, they had combined. It was just juniors and adults. Um, so I, I did do the gumboot throwing, but I was against men as well. And unfortunately, I yeah. didn't place. Yeah. Um, oh well. Maybe yeah. you can go back and coach the next generation. Yeah, give it a go. Oh they also God. had like um, egg and spoon races, and oh, well, actually that was for the kids. But they had um, tug of war, which was a lot of fun. So you'd have five people. So I remember I went in it with uh, my sister-in-law. I think we had a couple of friends, or two of my sister-in-laws. We went up there and, oh, God, we got absolutely flogged by this uh, local team of women and they win every year. The anchor, like she just, you know, she was at the end of the thing and she'd wrap the thing around her and she was. they were all just in position and they were Mm. kicking in the dirt, getting in their, like, spots. They knew what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. And we did well to get to the final. And then we just look like city slickers oh. getting absolutely wiped. I don't mean to um, insult wood choppers because I love wood chopping and I always, if it's on, all I do is go see Honestly, it. the one thing at the Melbourne show every year, Dad would be like, get your show bags. Yeah. And we'd go into the wood chopping. Yeah. And then we'd sit at the wood chopping for as long yeah. as we could possibly sit you can't there. Drag yeah. Me away. yeah. But nonetheless, it does feel like a sport made out of a household chore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like some really smart mum has yeah. brought this up years ago. Exactly. She was like, geez, this went further than I thought it would. Yeah, I'll time you. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.